0: Hello, Consumed listeners. Welcome to the 19th season of the podcast about eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. For this season, I'm chatting with food and beverage legends, people who have made a significant impact on their industries and the palates of generations to come. I think you're gonna love it. But before we begin, I wanna tell you about some of the Consumed podcast sponsors. Consumed is sponsored by MidState containers, cargo storage containers, and refrigerated shipping containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how MidState containers could change your life, but the truth is many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use MidState for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods for private collections and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Midstate containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root sellers. My guest from season 10, Krista Flieger from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her midstate container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a midstate container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. We all know eating fruits and veggies is an important part of staying healthy. Fresh, local produce has the most flavor and nutrition, but how do you know what's in season locally? Become part of the Tally community as a member of the Tally Farms Box Program. Tally grows their produce and partners with other California farmers to include the freshest and best-tasting local produce you can find anywhere farming on the central coast since 1948, the Tally family created the Tally Farms box to make healthy eating easy and affordable. Here's how it works. Select which size box you want, Then choose pickup or home delivery and how often you want to get your box. It's flexible for customization and vacation holds and included in all boxes are tested recipes and storage recommendations. Come be a part of Tally's healthy lifestyle. Visit TallyFarmsBox.com and use promo code CONSUMED for $10 off your first box. That's promo code CONSUMED for $10 off. Eat fresh, eat local, and eat lots of California fruits and veggies For better health. Okay, on to the episode. I once heard someone call Chuck Higgle the godfather of Central Coast beer, but I would go so far as to say that in many ways, he is the godfather of beer across the state of California. What began as an obsessive side project to studying architecture at Cal Poly has since comprised a life and career that celebrates the art and craft of brewing. He once managed the iconic Spikes Pub in the San Luis Obispo Creamery, a business that has since closed but will forever have a place in the hearts of beer lovers everywhere. He also convened the California Festival of Beers, and he brought his special brand of education and beer hospitality to the famous Transitions Beer Dinner, the San Luis Obispo Mozart Festival, and local NPR affiliate KCBX. I know Chuck is a beer man about town, but we also sing together in the San Luis Obispo Master Chorale, so there's some discussion about the similarities of classical music and beer that I like to believe will delight fans of either, both, or neither. Here is Chuck Higgle. I invited you to be on this season of episodes because it's the legends series. And I have invited you because I think anybody who understands craft beer on the central coast would know that you are a legend. You've been carrying the banner of craft beer and, and otherwise international beer for so long. And you are so well known to lots of people. Um, Tell me about how that relationship to beer, not just craft beer, but beer in general, began. Did you grow up watching somebody drink beer or, or tasting it yourself?
1: Absolutely not. I was immune to beer until I turned 21. <laughs> so, wow, no, good for my you. Parents, my parents never had a, a drop of anything alcoholic in the house. Really? Um, they got over that as soon as I left the house. They started having good beer and wine around. But uh, <laughs> while I was a kid, not a chance. And, uh Went through my first three years of college, never doing anything but focusing on, on school or partying downtown or anything. So...
0: What did you study?
1: Architecture.
0: <gasps> At Poly? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, Nice. But where did you grow up? Here?
1: Um, no, no. San, uh, San Pedro down in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And uh, so, um yeah, came came to architecture school and was so focused on architecture school, you never actually saw the town itself. That's you just, what I hear. It was just like nose to the grindstone. And until I started then um, maybe about the fourth year getting work in town and actually going, whoa, I, I like this town. This, mm-hmm. is, this is really nice. I didn't even know that until the third or you know, fourth year that I didn't want to go back to Los Angeles anymore yeah. for starters.
0: That's what I hear, though, is architecture is so rigorous mm-hmm. at Cal Poly, mm-hmm. maybe anywhere, but at Cal Poly specifically, that those folks don't see the outside of the building for quite a while.
1: <laughs> so s- there, uh, in my fourth year, I, having turned twenty one, something clicked, and I go, you know this this beer stuffs. Hey, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'll go so far as to say that I actively disliked it. If I accidentally tasted anything like a beer when yeah. I was a kid, you'd go, oh no, Same. you know, just <laughs> terrible. Yeah. So how how that trigger flipped, I have no idea. Mm. But it was just a simple glass of Coors that, you know, I think when some friends were coming, over, going, this stuff's not bad. No,
0: you're, tellin', you're telling me that your AHA drink was a Coors, perhaps?
1: That dis, that kind of triggered, you know, that maybe beer was tasting something worth tasting. Yeah. I love Coors. it. Of course. But having skipped over that period in your life where you just wanted a drink to get drunk. Yep. I only uh, ever purchased for the first year or two one bottle at a time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
1: I had my shopping, uh, shopping cart at the grocery store, and I would just look real closely at every beer, and the, the little grocery store was starting to really get into imports where I li- lived. So I would go, okay, I'm going to have that beer right there. And I'm going to mm-hmm. take it home. And I'm going to enjoy this beer, you know. Mm-hmm. So by limiting myself because I was poor to one beer at a time, but making sure that each beer was a really good one, yep. um, that I get, allowed me, like I say, to skip over the, that phase in your life where you just drink to, to, yes. to, to go through volume, you know.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: And uh, so what the problem for me then was... Uh, I was going to take those bottles and I made little racks on my wall and I collect. I just put the bottle on on the wall and I started a bottle collection. Yep. And I could not um, get any help on understanding why a beer tasted. You know what what it does. What what that word on the label meant, mm-hmm. or um, what should I expect from a beer from that country? And There's where would you
0: even go for that information?
1: Absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Not a chance. So. Um, I was to the point of arranging my, the German beers com- coming in were, were plentiful. Mm-hmm. You know, the the era of imports was going great guns, and it was really easy to become an importer. Difficult to become a brewer. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the federal government would make you jump through hoops to make sure you weren't the mafia or something, yeah, you know, right. to, to make sure you were okay to be licensed to create alcoholic beverages but if you wanted to import one it was like one page of paperwork and you could become a beer importer and go back and forth to your favorite town in germany and bring beer over
0: well so give me give me a time frame here what what years are we talking about generally? okay
1: uh the uh, the the turning point of 78 79 into 80 okay. maybe something were in there
0: so that's when it was very difficult to be a brewer but but easy enough to become an importer
1: yeah, and there was starting to become an awareness among the population that there's a little market for for good beer. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is only a few years apart from where people started realizing that the Californians could make wine. Yes. um it, it one one was led to the other. It's not really a coincidence that mm-hmm. somebody pointed out good beer in California blossomed in Wine Country. Mm-hmm. That that's not a coincidence. It's just the way things are. Yeah, but uh, so.
0: It is right in that time frame, though, as as you mention it, that is when California started to really produce its very fine stuff and recognize that it was producing fine stuff. That was that was a key. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: To actually respect it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Up up until then, you people just got their wine out of New York, and New York Mm -hmm. got it out of Italy and France, and that was where where it all went. But well, my point, I was leading to on the subject of German beers, is I had enough of them that I could not just put them on my wall and arrange them anymore neatly because I had, I had to subcategorize them <laughs> to, to, make, to keep it organized. And I started getting out my map of Germany and saying, okay, I'm like a little dot on my map of Germany mm-hmm. for where all these beers come from. And then you realize, wait a minute, you could tell. Mm. that these beers did taste different than these beers down here, you know, that the northern okay. beers tasted from the southern so beers.
0: So like regional differences. So yeah,
1: there it is. And again, no one no one to help me or to explain that to me.
0: But you're deducing you, it. You,
1: you just go, yeah, the, the beers I really like that particular flavor in all come from Bavaria. Mm-hmm. But I also really like these really clean, bitter ones that come. And look at it, they're all coming from the north. Yeah. So, uh, so that became my, my f- first realization. I need to, to, to get more help on this. So that was about the time then that uh, a book was published uh, out of England called The World Guide to Beer. Mm-hmm. So this is like the Bible coming down from heaven all of a sudden and just answering <laughs> all of your questions in one convenient book. Yeah. So the author there was Michael Jackson. So yes. if you ever hear me refer to Michael Jackson, it's not the singer. Yeah. But the, uh, the the guy who got, got us all started on recognitions of beer styles, yep. regional differences.
0: Like filing it, organizing it. Yeah.
1: Right. There was no, you know, what we now think of, let's say, in homebrew judging as a recognized beer style. Mm-hmm. That whole idea simply didn't exist before Michael Jackson started saying, well, this is different from this, and this mm-hmm. is style is this, and has this function and this purpose. Yeah. So I, I even tried to push the, the Home Brewers Association at one point to, to start being more detailed in their creation of beer styles. Uh, they, they allowed me to break one one of their beer styles down into four and redescribe it for Which them. Which one you was know? that? The category that they were <laughs> using was called Continental Lager. Oh, okay. Well, that's... I said, well, where, who would even call a beer continental lager except the English, and the English make terrible lagers. So we don't want that, you know, as a yeah. guideline. Guy. So I said, well, listen, there's Pilsner, and there's Dortmunder, and there's Münchner, and there's all these different lagers. Let's, and they all have a purpose and a yep. reason they need to be seen as different for judging. Uh, so let's let's break down, you know, and create this appreciation at least totally. for uh, more detail work and. And then it wasn't too much later that they said, yeah, let's let's get very specific with our Mm -hmm. beer style descriptions.
0: Style is, I mean, I'm jumping way ahead here, but style is a big driver for how you look at beer specifically. I mean, I know it is for a lot of people, but it has been, I think, a hallmark of your career that you have organized by style. Um, I'm thinking of this beer festival that we've talked about a little bit that... Almost in a varietal, not almost, but in a varietal sort of way, you organized a beer festival that, you know, this, this booth here is all, what, double box. This booth here right. is all pale ale. So the,
1: the first beer festival, and this is uh, uh, 1983 in 1983, in the parking lot of the Creamery behind Spike's. Wow. Uh was all bottled beer all international. There wasn't enough mm. uh you know, we had anchor steam is here in Nevada and not much else. Imagine that. But we had beer from Australia you know, uh Poland, you know, any anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to break it up by nationality. So if if there was a category that we're gonna call stout, mm-hmm. it will have sweet stout from London, bitter stout from Ireland, strong stout from Australia, you know, uh, stout from Jamaica. It'll be a fun booth. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> The stout booth is a fun booth. <laughs> so,
1: so it was very international. Of course, the world was full of pilsners, so we had to break that up into...
0: German pilsners and Czech pilsners.
1: American-style or... pilsners yeah. from all over the world. Don't forget, American-style huh. pilsner describes any... Uh, uh, beer that is mostly adjunct grains. So Mexico, Australia, Karen from Japan. Mm-hmm. The whole world's making their best effort to imitate Budweiser. Don't tell anybody. But um, <laughs> and then the the extent to which you don't use adjunct is adjunct grains. Then leads you to Germany and the kind of the sense that this is now the real thing.
0: Hold on, will you explain what an adjunct grain is? I've never, I probably know what it is, but I've never heard it called that.
1: Well, the the, the German purity law says barley is the only legitimate source of fermentable oh, sugars. I see, I see, okay. So the whole world, though, um, outside of Germany, uh, will use whatever is convenient and available. Right. So America and uh, the New World is corn, and Budweiser insists on rice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese use rice, Australians very quickly decided that all malt beer, all barley malt beer was too heavy and that the world needs lighter, more refreshing drinks. But let's say Michelob, which was uh, uh, Anheuser-Busch's premium beer, Mm -hmm. would only have 20% rice, Mm -hmm. but Budweiser was 30% rice. So even within uh, uh, an American-style brewery, there was a sense that the closer to all malt the more uh, uh, premium yes. your beer was. right. And the when you got over to a country like uh, not quite Germany, Holland, hmm. Switzerland, you know, France, then... <laughs> not then quite you're, German. No, yeah, as soon as you cross the Rhine, corn enters your beer. I mean, as soon as, you know... <laughs> so There's a famous
0: old poster, New Yorker poster of New York, and it shows, you know, Upper... Upper West Side, Upper East Side, Central Park, Village, whatever. And then past the Hudson, it's everything else. You know, it's, so it's there's true. so there's Germany, and then there's everything else. That's Germany's opinion of yeah, beer, yes. <laughs> for sure. It's like once you
1: cross the, the borderline to another country, you don't have the purity law anymore, and your yeah. beer. I'm sorry, it's just not worthy.
0: So as you're getting, as you're approaching Germany, you're talking <clears throat> about those countries, France. Yeah, Holland. being
1: being recognizably not the American style, mm-hmm. but not exactly German either, and that would go clear up into Carlsberg uh, and, and Denmark mm-hmm. and all the all the perimeter countries. Switzerland, by tradition, was all malt, but no, not by law. And then there's the Czechs. Yeah. The Czechs have the full respect of the Germans.
0: Yeah, well, they should. That's the
1: only, that's yeah. the only foreign country <laughs> that the Germans go, okay, yeah, well, that's the Czechs. Yeah, well, okay, they're good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's too funny. Okay, so as you're organizing these things, I mean, I, from what I understand from the Chalurzos who I spoke with for the same season up at Russian River Brewing. That's not how beer festivals were done.
1: Oh, no. No, never. No. Okay,
0: and so explain why that's different.
1: Well, uh, when we you know had to invent the beer festivals from scratch, basically, it doesn't exist. I was inspired by the Great American, and they they had a theme, which is every brewery in America, period. So then each table was a brewery. At about the same time I was doing my first beer festival, Uh, KQED in San Francisco Mm -hmm. started one where they just said, well, we'll let the importers set up their table. Mm -hmm. So, but an importer brings in beers from a lot of different countries and sources. And so there wasn't any coherent, uh, connection at that table, Mm -hmm. except that it was one guy that imported them, not nothing else to, uh, make those beers go together. I just thought there was a lot of fun that could be had from, uh, establishing that, uh, in the mind of the drinker that each group of beers had its time and place and reason Mm -hmm. as a, um, so that while you're sitting at a table thinking about the 12 beers in front of you, you're also putting yourself in kind of a mindset Mm -hmm. for that group of beers. You know, this is not a, a sunny afternoon group of beers. It's a, Maybe a cold weather in England, uh, yeah. evening by the fireplace group of beers. Between it, it, it,
0: like November 16th and December It's a mindset that helps, yeah. Yeah. That
1: helps you know, get, get your head with the beers. So uh, it wasn't until our fourth festival that there was enough of uh, California beers. And I only mean like 14 breweries.
0: This is insane. To,
1: to go, okay. okay. We're we're gonna do it. We're gonna get rid of imports, mm-hmm. and we're going to bring together every brewery in the state of California. Oh, I
0: didn't realize you got rid of imports totally, but you it was a celebration of California beer. No, or that West that Coast.
1: was well. I I always like to have a theme, you know, mm-hmm. to anything or a reason. I never uh, I never did potluck beer festival where everybody just brings mm. what they want. Mm-hmm. Always the beers are, are carefully are reasoned. Well, so when you just say I'm bringing all of California, that is a reason.
0: Yeah.
1: But no, the uh, if you're not brewed in California, you couldn't come to the California Festival of Beers. Love it. If you hmm. if you were brewed in California, and that includes Anheuser-Busch and Miller, oh. we do want you.
0: Yeah.
1: So now I'm eliminating size of brewery. This is not a microbrewery fest. Mm-hmm. I'm eliminating my own opinion as to the quality of the beer. Mm. I know perfectly well a brewer makes terrible beer. He's there at the beer festival. Hmm. Uh, we go to some, those were actually some of the one, hardest ones to get.
0: Yeah. But, <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what did that do for you and how did that serve the event to include anyone, like to put those hard parameters on it that both exclude and include? How, what did that do for the event or for the people who attended? It, it
1: created then, uh, the most important thing for me was that beer had a place behind it. That, so, uh, at, at the, that the brewery booth, you'd be standing there. Uh, we made our own displays and all the artwork and the whole, all the signage matched. We made them all so that the, the smallest brewery in California that time was called Angelus mm. and the largest was Anheuser Busch. I always liked it alphabetically. Those two are adjacent. Right next to
0: each other. Yeah. It's like,
1: so there's there's the smallest and the largest, and they're only like three miles apart on the mm. on the map of, of Los Angeles. And we treated them exactly equally mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we made the booth. The, the, the marketing powerhouse of Anheuser-Busch was not allowed to go in there and start setting up Anheuser-Busch displays at all. Yeah. There was no artwork that we didn't make ourselves. Mm-hmm. But... We wanted to show a map, almost more important than anything else, that there is a place. This exists; it's real. Go there. Mm -hmm. Go to the brewery. You know. And in fact, here's three of them from the same area. You know, make make a set out of them. So we published a little map book uh, that was geographically laid out that you could go. Well, throw that in the glove box of your car whenever you're in any part of the state of California. Hey, there must be a brewery. Here, let's go. Let's go. That also
0: must be helpful. I'm thinking of you with your map of Germany also to see like, why is this building up so much steam in San Diego? Why is this building up so much steam in, in Paso Robles? Why are these areas, the ones that are generating attention and how they spawn others had to have been fascinating.
1: Not a clue. Um, <laughs> no, essentially, why why uh, why some breweries become hotbeds of, of good brewing is that the, is the interaction between the brewers themselves. Yeah. Yes, nothing about the customers uh, demanding it or anything like that. Uh, I don't. I don't think San Diego. Well, California as a general rule. Um, was always more open to hop bitterness than they were back east. Mm-hmm. Why that should be, nobody even knew. And this was before microbrewers. Even even in the Anheuser Bush days, they could tell that that in their tasting panels that that we were open to a, more hop content in Is our beer right? than they were back east.
0: Because it had a because they were thinking regionally, <clears throat> or was it happening without them necessarily wanting it to?
1: I um. It just may be all food, you know, uh, differences, uh, tastes, taste buds, palates across the food spectrum might have been different in California, Oregon, Washington. Mm. I like thinking that, actually. But there was just never any question when the microbreweries, you know, started blossoming them up like little mushrooms popping up out of the soil, that they were in the soil of Oregon, Washington, and California, Northern California specifically. Yeah. Uh, Remember, uh, our first beer festival took place when there was no um beer south of us that
0: south of here
1: no no south of santa cruz oh oh, that that there the the first seven years of let's say sierra nevada opening in 81 Mm -hmm. so i'm looking at the entire decade of the 80s up to 86 87 Mm -hmm. finally a southern california brewery opened
0: and which one was that
1: Angeles in the uh, Chatsworth. Mm. But also at that same time, I am talking little bitty, you know, things. Nobody in Los Angeles knew about it, of course. Just because you open a brewery doesn't mean anybody knows about yeah.
0: it. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I I will tell you flat out, when we opened Spikes in 1981, I'm an amateur guy going in there going, I'm your man. I know all I know all about beer. I've got a bottle collection on the wall. I know every I've tasted every beer that I've ever seen mm-hmm. on the shelf at a liquor store in California. I did not know New Albion existed.
0: Oh, how funny. Yeah.
1: That means my liquor stores up and down the state didn't know New exactly. Albion existed, or else they would have certainly set me up with a bottle. Yeah. New Albion was there for, for four or five years, and simply no one knew. Mm. There, There's just no communication, no no pipeline, no buzz. No infrastructure. No buzzword. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh it w- we were well into our first year at spikes when people started talking, oh yeah there's there's little bitty you know uh mm-hmm. pocket breweries up in uh, northern california maybe five or six of them we go going- and I I just said, well, I I'm I'm only only interested in serious brewers, not somebody brewing out of the garage. I just just res, disrespected them right off. Oh, how funny. And uh, well, f- big first,
0: mistake, Chuck.:
1: Well, not really, because the first batches of a new Albion to make it down to slow were, were gone. They were They had mm. no shipping, you know, stability at all. they were They were really sour. And Sierra Nevada did a better job. Okay, that's great. My first visit to New Albion, um, the brewer, you know, cracked open a bottle of beer. Let's try one. And I had to, like, hold myself back because I didn't want to seem shocked that it was good. Oh, (laughs) You know you, you know, you know how it is when when you go, whoa, this is really good. I had no idea. Yeah, and, and you are like, well,
0: yeah. Oh well. Okay, uh-huh. thanks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I was like, my goodness, I had no idea that New Albion was making good beer, mm. but you had to get it. You know, it had no stability. It was yeah. all hand hand bottle cap yeah. stuck in a wooden box.
0: Drink it within three hours.
1: And my even Anchor Steam did not have. Uh, a regular distribution pattern. Mm. They had to be in a, an import. So they had to send their beer to an uh, importing company down in Orange County or Los Angeles. Yeah. And that that importing company would then find the the distribution routes to get it to Southern California. That's
0: ridiculous. So
1: I think that beer stopped at four different locations before it arrived at my front door. And so, wow. yeah, I always used to tell people that we're in San Luis Obispo. We're the we're the farthest from the Northern cali breweries. We're not, not halfway to L.A. Your beer goes all the way to Los Angeles, sits in a warehouse, and then comes back halfway mm. to where it started from to get to San Luis Obispo. Mm. So that's how we got our Sierra Nevada, how we got our Red Tail Ale, was that the beer would be shipped to... Uh, Los Angeles, and then distributed for Southern California.
0: That's changed and so I said, much, you know. And I said,
1: "If it tastes good when it gets to me, you're doing a great yeah, job." Yeah, that is a good. Your that's packaging a good... stability is working. Yeah. And they go, "Thank goodness for that." Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tell me about starting spikes, though. I mean, we've referred to it, but how did you? How did that come to be, and what was your specific role in it? Uh, Bob
1: Spiker was a professional restaurant manager, um, and his his brother was. Kept telling him how good Cal Poly was, so uh, Spike uh, and his wife came came to, up to San Luis Obispo and started that little bitty restaurant in the Creamery, where other restaurants had gone out of business for the last couple of years. Yeah, and uh, his his professional background was um, the hard liquor side of it. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's a, a great bar manager and everything, but he realized he didn't have the money to to get the uh, the hard liquor license, yeah. so that beer and wine were going to have to carry their weight. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't run a restaurant on food alone. The The beverage has to actually almost subsidize the food side. Yeah. So he had had an idea uh, years earlier that there should, should be some fun way to incentivize the, the beer program. So he invented the little uh, card that you punch off.
0: Got the shirt. Yeah. I love that incentive.
1: I had no idea that customers would react to that. My first thought was now customers are just gonna drink the ones they wanna drink. That was the wrongest I've ever been. I am
0: so people, glad you were wrong too.
1: People would go way out of the way to drink a beer they couldn't afford and one they couldn't even pronounce off the beer menu because sure. by God it's number seventeen and today I'm gonna drink it. <laughs> you know. I need
0: to make a um, dent in it. It's this it's garden.
1: gonna I know I gotta drink it sooner or later. Let's drink it. You know, so pretty soon uh, I was freed up. As the guy who p- eventually picked all the beers for each spot on the card, mm. to to put obscure beers on there, so the card liberated me to to do the ones I knew were good, as mm-hmm. opposed to the ones that had some name recognition or or something like that. So it just became much. The card the card really carried carried the business. It created it created this concept mm-hmm. of regulars. Mm-hmm. No no restaurant has ever had regulars like Spike's had regulars. No, I, I I could be wrong but the idea that within your first two visits to spikes you had been embraced as a, a lifetime customer and felt that way i've never seen any bar do it as successfully so um the the idea of calling together volunteers from spikes to put on a beer festival for kcbx came to us
0: mm.
1: no problem i every, every every table at every seat at every table i can just walk up and say Hey, uh, you want to come work on the, uh, the Pale Ales booth? You know, I need yeah. somebody to, to cover that spot. And everybody always said, yes, just a great volunteer crew.
0: Was that a fundraiser for KCBX? Was that the, part of the The very first
1: classes? festival was um, KCBX had just gotten the idea in their head that they'd done some wine things. That's, mm-hmm. What can we do with beer? Somebody said, go ask Spikes. Go mm-hmm. ask Chuck and Spikes. And they were thinking a dinner. And I said, no, I just come back from Colorado where I saw the Great American Beer Festival, Mm -hmm. which by the way was no bigger than the parking lot of the Creamery at that at that time. Yeah. And but said, you know, this was this is the way to go. Let's do the festival. So that's how that, that got started. Okay.
0: Wow. So that card, I'm so glad I asked you that. I had forgotten about the card and how important it was. I'm specifically thinking of my husband, Jake carried that thing all shredded up in his wallet. You know, it's not a QR code. It's not an app. It's a physical little cardboard card. (laughs) Yep. And it would get clipped or or punched. Um, And how influential that must have been. You having your taste, knowing what was good, making it available to other people, not just making it available, but like kind of forcing them to drink it. If you want to finish this card, you're going to have to
1: drink it. Here's another thing. The worst selling beer in my restaurant did just fine Mm -hmm. because somebody sooner or later is going to have to punch number 39, you know. So, and we had so much participation, every customer came in, they didn't get the chance to really say, no, I'm not using it. Yeah, you are. Here's your card. and I just punched it for you.
0: I don't want to participate. Yeah, well, you're gonna.
1: my worst selling beer, the importer said I was his best account. (laughs)
0: What a wonderful, like, it's like so many wonderful, influential things. You could not have known at the beginning that it was going to be like the raison d'etre for your beer program. You could never have known that, Mm -mm. but it worked out so well.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the one thing that I thought coming into, uh, Spikes was that I could pour a beer better than anybody had seen it before. Because I was thinking of the German long pour where you take Mm. a a tall crystal Pilsner glass and you set up a big head of foam and let Mm. it set for a second, top it off a few times till it gets real creamy, foam rises up over the top. Mm. I said, if we could make this, you know, especially everybody would recognize that this was not normal beer service and look how good it is. It's beautiful. It tastes beer so much better. We didn't didn't get that until... (laughs) So say, did fairly late in the game it's like how fast can you get to the beer to the table <laughs> yeah. and stand back we got I mean there was waiting lists out the door at Spikes you know mm-hmm. for its first 10-15 years mm. um, and remember this is all bottled beer I, I yes. used to describe uh, since uh, uh, we were just carrying six packs from the back to the front as fast as we could carry them and we would take entire six-packs, and with the bottle open in our hand, just start, boom, 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 And bottle caps would actually just be flying in the air, and we'd be pushing bottles down. the most down.
0: toned forearms you know, of well, the bar-
1: bartenders used to compete to see who was the fastest yeah. remover of bottle caps, and I, I, I was a competitor. Of yeah.
0: That. Well, so why did, real quick, I'll say that on our, uh, we had our rehearsal dinner to get married 22 years ago, and, um, we had dinner, but then we all went to Spikes and I felt like that we had, we had arrived if we were having our, our rehearsal dinner at Spikes. Um, but that's how important it's been to us. So why did, why did you leave Spikes? And also I, I were you part owner or was that a no, different person? No, never was. Okay. Spike
1: and his wife, uh, remained the, the owner, uh, throughout, um, and so that was a little awkward for me when Spike decided he wanted to sell out. Was yeah, I felt like I was being sold with the, the restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, as a uh, as a, like the furniture <laughs>
0: <laughs> comes with yeah,
1: comes Chuck. with beer guy. Yeah, um, and you know, so Spike had a uh, even though for the last you know half of, of Spike's time, he was not actively the face of the restaurant anymore. Uh, half the people thought I was spike until they got it cleared yeah. up, you know? Uh, so, um, but, uh, then new, new owners came in and they're entitled to do it their way. Yeah. And, uh,
0: but you didn't stay on,
1: uh, overlap just enough to, to get them started and, and left and, uh, that was 1995. So.
0: Where did you go from there? How, do, I'm, I'm wondering, how does a person with, who is self-trained, I mean, rigorously, so How do you make a living out of that? So you, I mean, I I speak from experiences. I (laughs) I didn't study journalism or wine, food, none of that, not officially. And so I've always been interested, you know, how do people like us actually make money off of those things that are interests that become, that become our livelihood?
1: And the answer is not much, you know, Um, it was, it was never a remunerative uh, passion, you know, it's uh, (laughs) It's always been something that I, I did for fun, and uh, was happy when money came my way, and not yeah. weren't necessarily linked between the two. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I worked, sometimes I made money. Oh, you can do both? Great, um, you know. Uh, then, then I went into the distribution side of it. That's uh, what I With the turn of the century, you know, and then I was driving up between L.A. and, and uh, San Luis Obispo the whole time, so I was. I was being a beer guy for, you know, everything from Thousand Oaks, you know, mm-hmm. to, to Paso Robles. So then I started doing more uh, demonstrations, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of the, the great activities that kept me serving beer, because I, I, that's where my heart lies. Is I want to be the guy who serves it to the customer, mm-hmm. not the middleman between the, the brewer and a, a restaurant owner. But that uh, was the brewer's dinner. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, nineteen ninety nine, uh, the Transitions Mental Health Association Legendary. was run by one of my great customers, Rick, Rick Wolf. Wolf. Yeah, And uh, so Rick says, well, he knows a beer guy, and we need to do a fundraiser. let's 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 pull this together. And we uh, we, we we developed a twenty year run mm-hmm. of what I believe. Was the only real ongoing beer dinner in the state, you know, to really get its legs under it, so that you could sell it out every year in advance. Because it's really hard to get a tradition like that rolling, you know, yeah, ebb and flow, and you have flowing, you have to kind of be willing to not make money the first year, and then, but boy, we uh, we stuck with it, and we were seating 120 people, paid. Oh, at over a hundred bucks a yes, seat yes. and people were happy to do it. They would leave the event and go, just sign me up for next year now.
0: And think about it, how much earlier that was than wine dinners, winemaker mm-hmm. dinners that call some, that cost that much. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable thing because beer has, has been, I would say behind Cal, uh, wine in terms of,
1: I what Well, people visibility. are willing to pay for
0: it. Well, <laughs> that exactly. That's yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that beer dinner, when did it start again? Ninety. So let's say it went from
1: uh, 99, I guess, through yeah. uh, 2018,
0: maybe, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I thought that it was kind of right before COVID. The respect from the chefs and the brewers for that event is sky high. I remember Paul Kwong, like you couldn't stop him from talking about it. He would talk <laughs> about this beer dinner, this beer dinner, and Rick, and transitions, and just what a smart and well done event it was and I didn't realize you were the catalyst for that.
1: Paul was the smart and well run event guy. I mean, he was, Don't
0: you love him? Oh, yeah. So,
1: you, you the, the as fun as the dinner itself was, the the beer selection meeting was even more fun. <laughs>
0: Tell me about that.
1: Because now you see, I'm thinking I'm thinking all year long when I see a beer I'm going, "Ooh, ooh, I want to remember that when it comes time for the beer dinner." Um, and so we bring uh, um, two or three beers for each spot on the menu, which will be, you know, an, an appetizer, a uh, a warm up beer, a, a salad course, a, you know, somewhere there's got to be a hop involvement course and sure. a malty involvement, light to dark, weak for to each, strong. Right? Different chefs but that's for each not course. known until the sit down meeting.
0: Oh, oh so oh, we're
1: identifying the beers we want to serve, and every First. time we do. You know, Paul and whoever a couple of the really good chefs are start talking about it, Mm -hmm. and just listening to them talk could just melt you, Mm -hmm. because Paul Paul doesn't describe uh, food. Except he just describes the process, so mm. I'll do this and I'll drizzle a little yes, bit over right. this over it, and I'll, I'll, you know, and he just go, uh-huh, uh huh, uh huh, whatever you, whatever he just said, <laughs> that's what we're serving. <laughs> so, and so uh. the 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 from chaos then during that meeting would form a six beer menu, each chef having claimed one of the six beers.
0: Only six, though. I mean you. That's pretty, that well, pretty much, been difficult. It,
1: I always considered the the walk-in hospitality beer to be as important as any other beer. In fact, that's mm. the one I, I, I would often work the hardest on, but um, they let that one kind of become a general uh, food buffet while the fi- there would be more like five chefs working on the, mm. the next five things you're going right. to
0: eat. It wasn't all international beers, or was it?
1: i my our uh, our theme that we worked with was that uh, was a balanced diet we we made up the concept of the balanced diet for the beer drinker, yeah. would have to include a german influenced beer, a Belgian, an English, an American, or any American version of German, Belgian, or mm-hmm. English. but mm-hmm. somehow, if you were drinking all the same kind of beer, you weren't getting a balanced diet yeah and yeah. then somewhere in the 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 six beers had to be a a low alcohol beer mm-hmm. and a high alcohol beer. Usually, by the time you're done, yep. but also light to dark, uh, bitter to bitter to malty. Mm-hmm. So that you could look at those six beers and go, "That's a hugely balanced yeah. diet." You just fed people.
0: <laughs> well, you? I, you know, I hadn't thought about this until now, but I have a newsletter um, that I send out to people who are fans of the podcast. And I would love to include, if you would give maybe like a six course balanced diet of the beers, you don't have to include <laughs> the food, but give us maybe an idea of, of what that would look like. I think that would be super fun.
1: Some, sometimes I have to admit the uh, the beer selection would be strongly influenced by my thought of, could I could I serve it myself uh. and make it something that, was unusual. Hmm. If it was something that I couldn't present in a way to create an enhanced appreciation yeah, of the it, education part. then, well, yeah. anybody could have served that. I'm not going to be as, as, um, in favor of that. So, <laughs> so I happen to know that I have got a whole bunch of this kind of Pilsner glass and I have this, you know, yes, beautiful German yes. tower I use for pour- pouring my Pilsners. And uh, But over here, I'm going to serve beer from a, a Irish dispensing system, mm-hmm. although it'll be American beer. And I do have my English hand pump so over not here. So it's just
0: head to BevMo, buy this bottle, buy this bottle. You can't even do it with tasting
1: So all it. my serving methods were as diverse yeah. and there was a different glass for every beer. So we were up over a thousand beer glasses being washed each night and we just had this vast you know mountain of beer glasses when you came in which is always very encouraging when you come to an event and just see glassware piled high <laughs> and deep you figure well we won't go thirsty
0: yeah and, it is encouraging
1: but uh yeah so so to this day i'm a collector of glassware and mm-hmm. can now put on any event in any any beer style that, mm. that you want
0: the i i doubt you remember the first time I met you and I didn't put this together until pretty recently. My husband and I were together. I was on the board for the, um, San Luis Obispo Mozart festival. Okay. I'm I apologize. I was working for them at the time. It was when they were taking on Scott. You, it was the, the season where they were inviting three different conductors to try out essentially Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. the role of music director. And we were up at chapel Hill, of course. and, you had a tap of Chimay, white, I think. <laughs> and I was like, we got to go over there. And you did. You took your time with explaining it. It was, it was lovely. And it changed, it changed the way we thought about beer. In fact, we went to Belgium. We went to Chimay and did the walk and everything, um, not this past summer, but the summer previous. And we talked about you when we were in the Chimay Cathedral with the dudes singing, with the brewers singing. Oh, man. Pure magic. Anyway, and sitting there with all the different, you know, the ones that you're able to get in the States and then the extra ones that you're not able to get. its It was a transformative thing to even think about Belgian beer for us because we had never been asked to think about it before. And then tasting it, I mean, that just... Tasting it is almost ancillary to the... To the invitation to drink it, uh-huh, uh-huh. to the service of it, and the education about yeah, it's it. Yeah, so, so beautiful. Yeah. So I
1: think uh, being a, a singer in the Mozart Festival mm-hmm. back in the early, I mean, the late 70s, even before I was a beer guy, was fine. But by the time of the mid 80s, I was going, listen, you guys are serving uh, the hospitality of the Mozart Festival is always legendary. You know, yeah. the musicians yeah. always come back because they've been mm-hmm. taken such good care of. The wine was always good yeah I said we, we gotta work on your beer a little bit. Why don't you guys just Love let it. me worry about the beer for the Mozart festival? I'll make sure some you know some an importer you know covers this every year. so what I could never stand was to see wine given this wonderful respect and then and then, beer. then <laughs> serving a paper cup over here you know is this <laughs> stuff that you wouldn't serve your enemy you know so i all i all I'm asking this is equal time with the wine guys yeah. so so that put a lot of pressure on me to, to come to a formal event, you know, white tablecloth and everything, mm-hmm. and and not just bring a, an ice chest and talk about it. So I had to bring my mm-hmm. German pier tower, polished copper, yeah. crystal beer glasses and everything because yeah. I, I was just kind of over always overdoing it a little bit because I wanted to, you know, be as fancy as the wine.
0: and to get, and, to, and to, like you did for us, to bring us into to set us up for success in understanding this one this this beer rather than the paper cup the whatever yeah you overdelivered but you had a goal didn't you i mean well, yeah, not just to be as fancy as the wine but to like to make thinking thoughtful Beer drinkers of all of us.
1: <laughs> I, I, it, it, I think it, it, it worked because to this day I still get the musicians who only show yeah. up in San Luis Obispo once a year going, "Oh, the beer guy's here," yeah. you know, and they come over at the at one of the you know hospitality events. You cut a
0: striking figure too. It's like I mean, yeah, yes. they,
1: they stand at my booth and we talk about beer and playing cello. Yeah. So you know,
0: <laughs> and class. So classical music has been part of your life also as long as you've been into into beer.
1: Longer than beer, yeah.
0: Yeah. um, And I am too. We Mm -hmm. sing in the master Crowd together. Um, How did that begin for you?
1: Well, I was uh, raised uh, by a band director Hmm. and church choir director. So um, I was a French horn player during high school, Mm -hmm. but upon coming to uh, college... Figured I would not be able to maintain the, the embouchure and uh, yeah. the, the workout schedule. You really want to be a good horn player. But I figured I could fudge it as a singer. which is uh, a, I know no singer wants to that hear so that. Sad, you I know. have the
0: same. I couldn't fudge it as a pianist. But, with, but as a singer, as long as I'm not the only person singing. You
1: know, if you didn't rehearse for a couple of weeks, <laughs> a couple true. of days. Well, you could still pull it off and, and you yeah. wouldn't sound. But on... Uh, At an instrumental, top-level instrumentalist, they can't go a day or two without practicing or else it takes them a day or two just to get back to where they were.
0: Yes, right.
1: And I always uh, marveled at the the great instrumentalists I would meet, but uh, singing just plain worked out. And uh, uh, so that became a huge part of my uh, college experience. I never missed a a season. Uh, In fact, I kept singing in the choir after I graduated just because I couldn't divorce myself from the, the Cal Poly choirs. And they
0: let you. I don't think they'd let you now.
1: They don't turn down tenors. You know, they,
0: <laughs> Hot I mean, commodity. My roommate
1: and I, my roommate did 11 years
0: <gasps> oh. with,
1: with the Poly University Singers. That's got to be the standing record.
0: <laughs> Who's that guy? Who he, was looks there like two,
1: he... <laughs> he was there two years ahead of me. He was still there two years after, three years after, because wow. I did six. And uh, then we transitioned into the vocal arts ensemble yeah. and, uh, of course, never stopped singing for the Mozart. I mean, the uh, Cal Poly was the source of the Mozart Festival, so yeah. you transitioned very quickly yeah. from that to that.
0: Mm. I love that you've connected those two also. When I emailed you to ask if you'd do this, you said that it's rare that your musical life and that your beer life intersect, and I think that that's a problem. I, I don't know. For me, you know... I was telling somebody recently that most of my friends have nothing to do with classical music. And I think that it is continually and increasingly seen as either indulgent or hard or weird or, hard, you know, inaccessible or whatever. Um, and I that really bothers me because...
1: And yet we get an audience for a concert. Let, we now, do, Let's but... say there's the Good Hall. So now... It always used to amaze me that I could sit there and sing for this entire audience in the in the mission or the, uh, the performing arts center, and then go to work the next day in the restaurant and have nobody come up to me and say I saw you at the concert yesterday, as if it was two different worlds. Yeah, there's the concert world and there's the people that are going to have lunch in, in a restaurant, you know, downtown world. Yeah, and I don't know why that should be. Occasionally, I would you know get a little overlap, but it would I, I, sometimes I thought I could look out at the choir audience and go, where's the beer drinkers? You know, I, uh...
0: <laughs> and it went, never the two shall meet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're not seeing the same people in the audience that you saw at the pub the night before. It sure seemed that way to me. And it, does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh-uh. I don't know. I, I worry a little bit cause you say that we fill the hall when we sing for master crowd. We do, but I see l- I don't see many people who look like me, I guess. And that's troubling because like beer, I feel that classical music has almost like therapeutic powers. I'm not talking about <laughs> being an alcoholic. Okay. But I mean, it, it has so many of the same properties. You, you get to experience it, you get to imbibe it, but then you also get to learn about the history. You get to learn about the recipe, which is like the composition, the person who created it, who's the composer, it gets to be performed in different ways. Um, and then also there's just that deep piece, and I think this comes from having been a musician first. Mm-hmm. There's an appreciation for the craft and and for that deep, deep something that I can't put my finger on. That, that's the really therapeutic part, where um, nothing else makes me feel quite the same way as listening to classical music. Any music, certainly, but classical music is particularly... Potent for me, I guess. Well,
1: music and the beverage of your choice um, is something you can just casually g- bounce off. You, the music can wash right over you and you can only pick out little bits. Or mm-hmm. you can choose to get very deeply involved in it. Mm-hmm. It's really up to the listener to, to determine how serious you're going to climb inside that piece of music. And that's mm-hmm. why beer and wine has that, too. You can You can just drink it and forget about it or you can go wow, you know, let's let's find out more about this.
0: Yeah. Uh, you that is a very good point. And actually as you were describing how you set up the California Beer Festival, Festival of Beers, Beer Festival.
1: The Festival of Beers was a yeah, phrase we used. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay.
0: As you set that up, you really had the interested and curious drinker in mind. Um and I suppose that that's, tr- you know, you, you let and encourage people to geek out on, on this stuff. Whereas, um, and that's the same for classical music. You have to kind of be interested at that level to really, I don't know, th- or there's room to be interested right. at that level. You it, don't have to be to enjoy it. It, but it, there's can, yeah, it can
1: support your interest level as deep as you want to get yes, into it right. and it's still be entertaining. Yeah. yeah. So.
0: so these days, how are you spending your time?
1: Um, I am uh, learning the cheese side of the business up in Paso Robles. I just really enjoy uh, working with uh, the owner of DiRamondo's Cheese Shop. Uh, Oh my goodness. I don't know if you know Jean. She's been there uh, 21 years now, and back almost when she started, um, we started doing cheese and beer pairing Mm -hmm. uh, presentations at Firestone. With, with Matt really? yeah. and where we would actually set up tables inside the brew house and let people kind of go on the tour and come back and there'd be a little station with some <laughs> cheese and some beer in it. And then we'd come back over here and sit down over, be some beer and cheese there. We had a great time. Yeah, so sounds I, very good. I was just there, you know, uh, after, after the COVID era and she was, Jean was trying to reopen, get more hours, you know, uh, so, um, we just latched onto each other real quick and that was fun. Mm.
0: Yeah, and so you're doing... Um... Just,
1: you know, just a couple days a week, you can find me... Yeah. Uh, instead of uh, talking beer with people, I'm just talking cheese with people. I, I get Fun. kind of the same enjoyment out of it. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, a new wine shop uh, just moved down from Templeton called 15 Degrees Centigrade. Go
0: Allie! And so great. so
1: uh, I poked my nose in there i said you know what you need is a guy to help you work on these taps a little bit here oh, and so it. i'm i'm just slowly uh getting having some fun with their their beer taps down there i'm it's still uh, she's still the manager but she's so focused on wine i said well you just need a person that but has she's that... open
0: she's open to oh, beer yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure yeah
1: yeah, and all all wine bars eventually realize that the beer is going to make up forty to fifty percent of their business, and That's you better funny. be doing a good job at it. You yeah. can't just—I don't think any sommelier alive that can ignore beer anymore. No,
0: Mm-mm.
1: yeah, those, those days are over. Mm-hmm. You need you need to put some heart into your uh, the beer program. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Look at all this effort and care uh, you put into this, this, this wine program you got going here. And you could tell that the beer, nobody cared about it. You could tell. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was one, <clears throat> one definition of a good, good beer place is when you could walk in and see, you know, eight, eight or a dozen taps and go, okay, somebody here likes beer.
0: And cares. One person.
1: Somebody in this business <laughs> likes beer. Who is it? And somebody, will, somebody will raise their hand over here and you could just tell, yeah. you know, that's all I'm asking, you know, yeah. is a, don't, don't just uh, let that slide. Like it's just filler. You I'm know, so glad you're program. doing that
0: for Allie. Um, yeah. I say she, she, she is very focused on the wine obviously, but she has a really great eye for beer. Um, I was part of their, their craft beer program um, for a while. They had a, a shipment, like a wine club, they had a book okay, good, and she did a great job um but I'm happy to know that we have her and you in slow, and that you've got some taps going over there that's exciting for me when you started I'm thinking back to young Chuck, who's looking at a a map of Germany, and you know putting little pins in it. You've, I assume, been able to get over there and make that map more <laughs> mental and more physical than it was um, just a piece of paper. Is that true? Very little. Oh. So
1: I, I preach German beer all the time um, without having been most, to most of the places I'm preaching mm-hmm. about. And... Uh, uh, which is which kind of fun because it gives me a different perspective than the actual German. You know, my, one of my good friends is Beta at Beta's Beer Garden. Love him. Well, I could tell which part of Germany he's from early on, <laughs> you know. And uh, so <laughs> it takes it has taken Beta some effort to get over his bias against beer from the other side of the country okay. and going ahead and allowing all, all parts of Germany to be represented. Yeah. So I think he's come a long way, you know.
0: But good job, Beta.
1: Yeah, for 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 years uh, he would come into spikes, and i say, hey, hey, Beta, um, I've I've got a, a a beer here calls itself a Dusseldorf style Alt beer from Modesto, mm. and uh, he'd drink it and go. Mmm, no. (laughs) You know, and I go, okay, I'll try again later, you know, and then we get another, uh, you know, alt-beer style, you know. Anyway, I can always throw out my uh, Dusseldorf questions to to, to Beta. And, uh, but um, now he actually sees an occasional American beer and he goes, I would drink that, oh. you know, and I, that's a big step for an American brewer to cross Beta's threshold and go, that's good enough to serve you Beta. And a big
0: step for him to open his heart to it,
1: oh, I yeah. think, so, too. Uh, I, I so see, I see Beta drinking Pilsner beer mm. at uh, Liquid Gravity, you know, and oh. I go, oh, that's a huge endorsement there. You, <laughs> that beer would not, you know, get past his lips if it wasn't darn good, so.
0: But you haven't been, like, at all?
1: Oh, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Small, but no, just dipping your toe. I just dip my toe in it, at
0: mm. best. Would Would you like to do more? For
1: instance, people go. Have I ever been to the Oktoberfest?
0: go, yeah.
1: Not a chance. I'm
0: yeah
1: busy putting on Oktoberfest events.
0: Beer,
1: yeah. that, some of them two or three a week mm. up and down the the coast. As as I am your rep for the German beer importer. Mm-hmm. Um. All the beers from Munich are in my book, and I'm a busy guy during October. It's like I wouldn't even wake up until November and see daylight. I I used to work so hard during October. Oh, I'm sure. That's calmed down quite a bit. I could probably get away and go to Oktoberfest now.
0: Yeah. But it sounds kind of like a a madhouse to me. I mean...
1: Yeah, as a person who can drink one beer and be done, I can't imagine being in a group of 10,000 people who aren't going to be satisfied with less than half a dozen. Exactly,
0: yeah. Yeah, one beer? Actually, that's funny. I, I feel that way, too. I could be done after one beer. Um, the whole concept of session beers freaks me out a little bit, like sessionable stuff. It, I, to think like, oh, we're doing a session where we're imbibing as much as we can. Is that how I'm supposed to understand it?
1: Oh, I love, I love the concept of a session. A what, talk to me a, about that. A session is an English pub phrase
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you've got four guys seated around a table. In England, you don't buy beer one at a time. You say, bring around.
0: Mm -hmm. And so
1: each person uh, brings four pints to the table. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't quit, therefore, before somebody, all four people have had (laughs) a chance (laughs) to bring (laughs) around. If you got five or six people in your group, you got a problem. You're going to be going for a while. (laughs) But during that period of time, a session is when you solve all of life's problems with politics and and Mm -hmm. nature. And the conversation just rages, you know, for... In all directions for, for several hours until somebody rings a bell and says, uh, last call. And you go, where did the time go?
0: And you've all covered each other.
1: And you, and you have, yeah, and you have solved all the world's problems or, or darn tried to argue, argue it out. Um, so I, I just love the idea of, of a session with, with friends where you lose track of time. And so therefore, the beer has to be super low alcohol.
0: Okay. And what
1: we call session beer in America, not low enough.
0: Yeah, okay. Lower than that. Yeah. What you're saying, I think a lot of people, brewers included, who are promoting their beer, don't know what session beer means. Mm -hmm. Because what I hear when I think, like what you're describing is lovely, thoughtful, you know, controlled and all, you know, it's a safe, amazing thing. What I hear when I hear sessionable is let's get bombed. Um, let's just, you know, let's oh. keep drinking, give me a beer that's just low enough that I can keep drinking all, all day and drinking oh. the same beer. Um, what you're describing sounds to me like a, an opportunity to try several different things. No, not so Oh, much. you're talking, okay. Oh, okay.
1: I, I think a good session beer is, is an amazing thing that you could be, uh, in the threes of alcohol, not 4%, yeah. just under, under 4% alcohol. And has to have some character to it that makes you come back to it.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, cannot it cannot lack bitterness in my opinion. Uh-huh. The bitterness is what makes you say, "I'll, I'll have another. I'll have another." Like Which eating, is why get, IPAs are so eating easy potato to blow chips through. or yes, something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I miss the session IPA. It's it's a category of beer I don't see in California anymore, mm-hmm. where they were just trying to see how hoppy and aromatic they can make a low alcohol beer. Good idea for me. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
1: being a hophead and a person who who does not like to consume alcohol in in general, mm-hmm. I know it's a it's a strange
0: no I contradiction get it. for I get me it.
1: that i I don't like I, I like to drink beer in such a way as to avoid getting drunk,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to that being the reason you drink beer, you know. and uh, yeah. So that—that's some people don't grasp
0: that. Very it's easily. funny that you say that because another one of your fellow um, uh, conversations on this season of the podcast, which is focusing on legends, is Rajat Parr, who is easily the most famous sommelier in California, and he has gone on the record saying he doesn't actually drink all that much. Right. I—I yeah. um, I have felt consumed with guilt in the past that I hear I talk about wine so much I talk about beer so much and I really don't drink very much but when I do I do it with my whole heart and my whole mind um but it may not be more than one pint or one... I think
1: that's why you get so much out of it when you do. I, I think so, too. I hope so. Um... Well, sometimes uh, it's, it's fun uh, to be talking to somebody. You get a great conversation and you're in the middle of a pint and uh, now you've got a second pint there. And halfway down the second pint, you have to stop a second and go, wow, that's really a good beer. Mm-hmm. And you realize that you had taken your mind off of that beer mm-hmm. because you were so busy talking and everything. But the fun thing is that that beer reached out and said, "Pay attention! <laughs> I am here, and I am going to take over your taste buds at least for a second here." Yeah. Um, I just love it when a when a beer slaps me around a little bit and says, "Hey, hey,
0: snap out of
1: it! Pay mm-hmm. attention!" You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, attention divided. All right, I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody: if it was your last day on earth and you were like, "God, I've done so many good things. I've really, I've done what I set out to do." what would you eat and what would you drink and who would be there?
1: I, I always like the question, if you, if you were on a desert island, what would your yeah. only beer be? And I said, can I have the entire pub transported to <laughs> the desert island? Because it's not just a beer. Mm. It's the environment mm. that surrounds the beer that is so enjoyable to me. Uh, the friends the, how it was served from a cellar down beneath into a, you know, a cask, you can't drink a cask all by yourself. You need a hundred friends to help you drink that uh, cask. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, hmm. that the idea of a, uh, beer engine, low alcohol beer in perfect condition, just beautiful and served well, that would be my, uh, final beer. But but
0: you want the pub, you—that's where you want to be.
1: It's not isolatable. Yeah, you know.
0: Okay. I, I
1: also had somebody ask, you know, Chuck, what's what's the one beer that you just, what's your dream beer that you can't can't get, uh, you know, some cult of beer that maybe I can't get. Mm-hmm. I thought for a second. I, I've never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Every beer, every beer I. Um, Wish I could get. I probably have, (laughs) you know, uh, but on the other hand, it it does grieve me that uh, the classic historic breweries are struggling to uh, stay in business in the in this swirl, this maelstrom of. Of A beer changing every 15 minutes yes, yes. Um, uh, world that the the stabilized beers have trouble f- finding their anchor, so to speak. There's the Anchor Steam. I know, uh, right. Reference. A great
0: example, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that I will certainly regret not being able to answer your question with a glass of Anchor Porter yeah. if the Anchor Steam beer brewery no longer makes Anchor now Porter. Now that's
0: your cult. Like, if I could just have another <laughs> another Anchor...
1: I have a glass of anchor porter and then die well, that'd be good you know? that's my
0: that's jake's that's his variety porter all straight down the line
1: yeah and sierra nevada really. won't even make porter except on special occasions mm. anymore it's their founding beer but uh, the, the chaos of of meeting mm. markets fitting your beer on shelf space uh doesn't allow you to have a pretty good selling beer anymore you have to have whatever's hot mm. right exceptionally now
0: exceptionally selling beer.
1: and uh so a beer that you just go, well, I, I just want it to always be there. I'm not going to drink it every day, mm-hmm. but I'm happy that it's there. Well, that's not good enough either because now it's not going to be fresh. Mm. So speed of sales and turnover is a quality issue. Mm-hmm. The beer has mm-hmm. to turn over and be fresh. So it has to sell well to be what the brewer wanted it to be.
0: That's a puzzle. So it, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so tell me though. All right. So you've got your... You've explained very well the beer that you would have and the environment, but what would you eat with it? I'm curious about what you, Chuck, would pair with the beer of your choice. Have you ever had like a sublime, trans, you know, transcendent beer food experience? I know you have. Well, uh, or, or something you didn't know quite was possible, and it turns out to be, it's it's
1: really quite good, is beer with breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um Camping out one one year after one of the beer festivals, a lot of the volunteers would go out to, to the park and, and set up tents and everything. And whatever empty keg or partially empty keg would be loaded onto a truck and you would drink whatever beer you wanted. Yeah. By morning, the only thing left over was about three different kegs of porter.
0: Oh, well, You know, because yeah.
1: people like porter, but they don't necessarily drink a lot of it. So mm-hmm. here we're having this big scramble eggs and sausage, you know, breakfast that or, sounds or something. Amazing. Yes. And I, I had no idea that yeah. uh, this here porter would go so well with breakfast. Now, mm-hmm. I, now I, I tell people about that. Hmm. Um, I'll throw in a plug to uh, the Bomb Tong Creole Cafe, which serves almost only breakfast. You can go there for lunch, but you're still eating breakfast. Yes, right. They have a, a New Orleans beer from Abita, that, which is a five, 5% dark beer, 5.5% dark beer called Turbo Dog. Mm. I said, that's breakfast beer right there. You know, you're in New Orleans. You should be having a glass of beer with your sausage and your beans and your rice and, and, uh, or grits. <laughs>
0: Okay, that is a. It goes so well, you wouldn't believe it. We, uh, my husband and I, worked for a brewery in New Zealand called Moa Brewing, and we they had what they called a breakfast beer, and it was kind of a lambic style. Um, That was the first time I'd ever heard of that before, but um, I do actually really like the idea of a breakfast beer, and I think part of the reason I do like it is it's not something you're doing to get drunk you're doing it because it's a nice environment it's a nice um it's a nice way to start the day anybody would agree and because you're probably not having more than two so you're not and it also is uh, uh, you know
1: a great a great brunch is always in danger of ruining the rest of your day for getting anything productive done sure so there's once you commit to hmm. blowing off being a responsible citizen for the next, you know, rest of this day, somehow the food and beverage does taste real good. It does. It does.
0: All right. And who would be with you?
1: Well, without my wife, what would be the point? Yep. uh,
0: (laughs) Good answer. Yes.
1: Yeah. Although um, my wife is uh, not uh, sharing beers and and wine with me anymore Mm. from her 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 dietary program she's on. Mm. So that leaves me... uh, uh, Sometimes getting the wine she really likes yep, and just drinking it without her, which is weird. <laughs> but she goes, no, hand that over here. And she'll smell it. And everybody goes, ah, oh, you can't hardly beat that. And hand it back to me and not yeah, drink yeah. it. Yeah. You know.
0: Close enough. Yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, if she's not drinking, you can come over here anytime and uh, you can share with us. So thank well, you very okay. much. Well, thank,
1: thanks for all the... the um, questions and everything. And uh, ho- hopefully that's uh, there's some information there that could be of entertainment
0: 100%. And there are many people who will want to hear about Chuck the Beer Guy. So thank you. Okay. That's it for another conversation on the Consumed Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Sign up for the newsletter at letsgetconsumed.com and follow along on Instagram at consumed.podcast. This podcast is edited by Chris Lambert and produced by me, Jamie Lewis. Until next time, thanks for listening.